Well, part of our move when we arrived in Bellingham was the traditional house hunt. Searching, Googling, and exploring all kinds of different homes. And we went from house to house, turning on faucets, opening doors, testing the durability of the rails, smelling the closets, and doing all those other things that people don't know what they're doing do when they look for a house. In the end, the Lord provided for us. Seeing a variety of homes was one thing, but seeing some homes that were clearly marked for sale, some in pristine condition given the golden treatment, that really raised the bar. And of course, there are always those that aren't really ready for sale or at least presented that way. But the home that we found was clearly marked for sale. Now, the people wanted to move this house. When we toured it, it had fresh paint and it had attractive furnishings. They did a great job with the cleaning. Outside, it had new decking and a new railing. It had a new soffit, a new fascia, and the fire pit was ready for use. You see, I could tell that these homeowners made their home attractive. They wanted to sell this house, and they wanted to win some seeker, someone seeking a new home, to come reside there. You know, for the Christian, you and I have a similar task, not to sell our homes per se, but to sell the house God builds. You and I have the task of making Jesus Christ beautiful to the world around us to make the gospel sweet and to make our our faith attractive, to make it something that people want. We want to cause those that are searching and those who are skeptical and those who are, are straying, we want to make Jesus excellent. But how do we do this? I mean, life is so busy. The gift of evangelism, it eludes most of us. We, we don't have that particular gift. I mean, what do we say? Where do we begin with all of this? How do we reach the lost? Doesn't it feel oftentimes that they are just so different and so far from us that the, the valley is so wide? How do we bridge it? Well, the Lord has a word for us today. And the God who ordained salvation ordained the means to bring it about. And though you and I may not be evangelists, and though we may not be skilled in speech, in fact, it's through the very busyness of our lives that God can bring about change. This morning we read of two preparations for a promising Christian witness. Our message comes from 1 Peter chapter 2. We're in verses 11 and 12. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we are working our way through this letter Peter wrote. Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, his life and his ministry. And Peter played an important role in the growth or the spread of the church. Letters like the one we read today, he, he wrote to persecuted Christians Groups of men and women just clinging to the very edge of the pagan Roman Empire. How do we live in light of this gospel? 
They want to strive to be faithful and obedient to the Lord, just as you do. Peter instructs us. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Well, I should note at this point in the letter, we begin a new section. Up to now, Peter's been writing a lot about our identity, who we are in Jesus Christ. I mean, you and I cannot possibly live or possibly do this Christian life apart from knowing who we are in the Lord. Peter's been great with that. He's been making it crystal clear in our minds just who we are as a result of our faith. Who we are always follows or always precedes what we do. And we see that in this letter, what God has done for us. Well, that comes before what we do in the Lord. Here we move from understanding that identity to living out that identity. Peter's going to describe over the next few weeks the Christian's life toward persecutors and toward husbands and toward wives and toward the government and this morning toward unbelievers. You might say that if Peter were typing this letter, verse 11 would begin a new paragraph. In fact, the verse would serve as a topic sentence for what's to come. And notice, too, how he enters into this with a very tender approach. He begins by calling this people beloved. What a great way to begin instruction. I mean, you and I understand this. We respond a lot differently to a boss who uses please and thank you rather than the kind of words that if I said them now would get me fired. Some versions read, dear friends, it's not that great of a translation. The emphasis is on God's love, God's love for his people, the love of God. That's the emphasis. It is beloved. It's, it's the same vein in which God speaks of his son. So too, he thinks of you this way. He says to Jesus, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. What a great picture. It's that love that's translated irrevocably to you, that God feels that way through Christ in, toward the believer. So in Peter, the Lord appeals to you and I today, and he instructs our Christian witness. And he begins with updates, renovations. He begins on the inside, the interior. The focus here is a cleanup of the inside so we can then clean up the outside. And we begin with verse 11. It's our first point this morning. We want to renovate the inside. Renovate the inside. True, lasting change. It begins in the heart. It begins in the soul. This is Jesus' take on the human being. In Mark chapter 7, verse 20, Jesus said, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart, he says, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, 
fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within. They defile the man. You see, the root of the problem is not in our hands or our eyes or our feet. It's in the heart. And it's from the heart that these things flow. So because our problems begin inside, renovation must begin inside. And for Peter, it's a reminder of our identity. Again, this isn't too unusual. He's bridging the gap between his introductory material on our identity, and he's now moving into who we are and what we do as a result. Peter calls us here strangers and aliens, foreigners and exiles. We learned this way back in chapter 1, verse 1. We learned there that we are are pilgrims passing through this world. Believers are not of this world, and we need to stop pretending like we are when we act like we are. Now, just think about this for a minute. Think about this idea of a pilgrim passing through, a traveler on his way, not bedding down and residing somewhere, but Moving along. What pilgrim wallpapers the hotel room? What pilgrim tricks out the rental car? What pilgrim wears pajamas on the airplane? I realize a tire's changing. But the point is that you and I are passing through and we're not to bed down in this world and to act like we belong here and that this is our home. Peter says, don't do that. Don't think that way. It's going to distract you. It'll divert you from your calling and from your home. Now, I see that there's an alien and a stranger listed in this passage. I don't think there's a lot of distinction, but again, I think Peter stacks these words up. He wants to point us to the fact that we aren't home. There's an emphasis here. It's it's just like we explored last week where there's this identity with Israel, with God's people in the Old Testament. They weren't at home. They were passing through. They were a pilgrim in the land. Abraham, Abraham, a, a premier patriarch among the Hebrew people, he calls himself this. He says, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you in Genesis 23. I mean, here's this man, the the leading figure among God's people, and he sees himself as just passing through. So what Peter does is he gives us our task. You and I are, are just passing through, and he tells us, as you do, as pilgrims passing along, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. To abstain is to simply refrain from something. To abstain is to keep away from it. This word in the New Testament, it's used of distance. If you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, it's the word used of that prodigal son when he was way off in the distance. It's translated different, but it's the same word. He's so far away, you couldn't touch him and you could barely see him. That's the picture of our position to these fleshly lusts in our soul. We are to have that kind of distance from them. 
They're like across the valley. They're, they're a long way off. It's, it should be that they're barely discernible to us. This call here by Peter is to abstain from fleshly lusts. This word lusts, we've, uh, we've encountered previously in Peter, back in chapter 1, verse 14. We saw there that this word for lust, it's a pretty neutral word. It can mean desires, but the context always dictates in English if it's desires or lusts. Desires can be positive and, and neutral, but lusts tend to be pretty negative and, and sinful. Whenever the context is negative, it appears in English in many translations as lusts. And what makes them so negative here is that they wage war against our soul. I mean, the soul is that all-precious important part of who you and I are. The soul is eternal. It goes on forever. The human being is a constant stream of desires. In our being, they are coming one after another. We don't need to prompt them. We don't need to invite them. It's as though we have a factory manufacturing them in our spirit. These desires, though, since the fall, since the Garden of Eden, they're tainted. That's not to say that every desire we have is bad or wrong. In fact, as believers, we have the Holy Spirit and we have very pure and good desires happening in our hearts. That sometimes is the tension or the pull. So we're in process. And Peter wants us to understand that these fleshly desires, they want to take what is good and, and corrupt it and make it bad and make it sinful and make it selfish. Just look at their potential. Look how Peter describes them. They're not on an attack. They're not on an offensive. This is not some kind of struggle. This is a campaign. He calls it a war. A war consists of multiple battles or various engagements. It's skirmishes here and then bigger battles and smaller battles there. It's a persistent daily lifelong attack against our soul. They're wanting to gain ground and hold ground and scorch ground. That's what they're up to. And the hottest part of this fight is going to be within our minds. This is going to be ground zero for victory or defeat. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, what did Peter say? Prepare your minds for action. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. If you can win the battle for your mind, you can conquer sin. You're going to abstain from evil. You'll see it on that distant hill and you'll know, you'll understand what it's up to. John Owen, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, writes, spiritual wisdom consists in finding out the subtleties, the policies, the depths of any indwelling sin. To trace this serpent in all of its turnings and windings. To be able to say at its most secret actings, this is your way and course. I know what you are about. Boy, to have that knowledge of our own heart and its desires to understand how they twist and they turn, boy, that's something to have and that's something to hold on to right there. What a great word by John Owen. But it all begins in the mind. It all begins in the soul. That's Peter's point here. And what he wants to do is reveal some important truths to us about how we clean the house. 
I want you to see a couple of these truths just as we move out of this section. I want you to understand first that you are at war. You know, in American history, there's been times where we've got this wrong. The nation celebrated a little too early the conclusion of World War I. There was some false reporting done before the war was over. Listen to what one man writes about this on the front lines of a trench, a captain named Harry Truman wrote, quote, such false newspaper reports are terrible things, and people responsible for them are just one grade below the worst criminal. He did not like the fact that these things were being misreported. He's saying, listen, nation, we are still at war. Stay grounded in reality. Understand the truth of the situation. That's Peter's call to you and I this morning, that we are at war. Many Christians live as though they're at peace. And to live at peace, spiritually speaking, is to believe there's no war. And to live at peace is to give almost no thought to our sin. And to live at peace is to think very little about any strategy for these things in our heart. And to live at peace is to say very little to God in terms of repentance or confession and to live at peace is to rarely call on his immense power for sin. To live at peace is to relabel our sin and to write it off as something that it is not. Believer, you are at war. That's Peter's word for you and I this morning at the deepest, innermost parts of our heart. We're in battle. These fleshly lusts, they campaign against the soul. We need to live like we're at war. As it's been said, we need to live on a wartime footing. Secondly, I want you to observe here that Christians experience fleshly lusts. You know by now that faith in Christ does not equal sinless perfection. We're not magically perfect when we come to faith in Christ. If anything, you may experience temptation more vividly. Thinking about our Lord's wilderness temptation for 40 days, I imagine on day 39, he felt temptation more viscerally than he did on day number two, such as it is in this pilgrimage. And we need to understand that any fleshly lust, it can arise from within our own souls. We're not immune. Christians are not immune to sexual immorality. We're not immune to adultery. We're not immune to homosexuality. We're not immune to transgenderism. We're not immune to drunkenness. The list goes on. It's not as though the big sins are just things that the world does. Those things can well up in our own souls. That's why we must maintain a war footing. You know, I think there's people who are believers who genuinely struggle with these things. And the tragedy isn't that we struggle. The tragedy is when we don't fight. I think that's what Peter would say. The tragedy isn't that we lose. It's that we don't learn from our losses. There's a war to be fought here. There's lessons to be learned. The question isn't, will we experience fleshly lusts? But it's, what will we do when we do? Well, thirdly, these lusts, Peter writes of, they are varied and they are quite invasive. You notice that the word is plural. It's lusts with an S. We can't confine these things to just the big sins. We mentioned what we might classify as some a moment ago. But these lusts, they're very wily. They're quite sophisticated. We might say that they have their own promotional material. They're going to come whispering in our ears 
We're not the big sins. Other Christians do this. They're going to come along and tell us that our consequences, they're just minor. Peter lists, if you look back in chapter 2, verse 1, Peter lists a series of sins. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Notice, that's a list he wrote to Christians. He says, listen, believers, purify yourselves of these things. You were not immune. Your lusts, your desires, they're varied. They're invasive. I think the best thing we have going for us in all of this is not only that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us power against it, but I think believers want to put them off. I think there is a deep desire in our hearts not to live at peace with them. And working through this letter, I often wonder about Peter and his time following the Lord. I wonder if he reflects back and thinks about maybe something that Jesus said or some teaching or something that the Lord did. In fact, I think we're going to see one of those in a moment here this morning. But for now, in all of this talk about avoiding and about abstaining from these lusts and our discussion on fleshly lusts, it was Jesus who told Peter, keep watching and praying that you may not enter in temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. Oftentimes, I feel like we can be more like Saul back with the baggage than David out front in the field. And I want you to know that in those moments, believer, you are not alone and you are not forsaken of God. And God is not standing off in some distant hill waiting and watching to see how you handle these things. Jesus tells us to pray, to call upon God, to ask an ever-present God to enter into these things that we struggle with, these fleshly lusts, and to do that, I encourage you, very genuinely, very authentically, if I could use those words, to be raw about the condition of our hearts with him. He already knows. But it is such a thing to be able to talk to God very clearly and specifically about these lusts that we wrestle. And I believe that he shows up in those moments to give us strength and to give us help and to give us power. I would not want us to get the impression that Peter's calling you and I to figure this out on our own, that we need to somehow get these things right or else. No, he calls us to invite the Lord into it just as much as he calls us to abstain. All of these things impact our soul. I think we get that. But the context reveals that there's others who depend on this as well, at least in a way. You see, our witness to the lost depends upon how we do this and what we do with this. You know, we began this morning with with what's inside, with the heart or the soul. An interior renovation, it must take place before we start thinking about what's outside. But once those things are happening, once we renovate the inside, it's time to renovate the outside. It's our second point this morning. It's verse 12, renovate the outside. This is possible because we've dealt with the source, and that's so important that we need to go after the source. 
We began with the heart, leaning on Christ, abstaining from lust. We can now move to the outside, and we can live a life that reflects Christ. We should also note at this point that to do work on just the outside, to fix up the trim and to make it look nice, that's only behavior modification. That is not something that we want to go after. Jesus roundly denounced what is called hypocrisy throughout his ministry. And the problem is is that these religious leaders were working really hard to keep things nice on the outside without ever dealing with what's on the inside. That is not the approach of Peter here today. We begin with these things on the inside so we can move to the outside and we can see some results. Verse 12 again, the reason for this, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of, in the day of visitation. I just want to draw on this image of renovation as we work through this point here. It's a point on godly conduct. These are five considerations for godly conduct. The first one, I would say this. When you're thinking about renovating, overhaul it all. Overhaul it all. Don't simply replace that front door. Don't just replace the gutter. Peter would say, do a complete renovation. The King James Version translates our passage at hand, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. That is not going for it all. That's not a very good translation. The word translated is better going to be translated as conduct or behavior. That's going to include our speech, as the King James Version says, but it goes beyond that. It's a, it's a full overhaul. In fact, this is the same word used back in chapter 1, verse 15. And what's great about this verse, again, is this emphasis on the entire being. Be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. You can hear how full-orbed that is, how that involves all of who we are. Secondly, when you begin your renovation, expect hate mail. Expect hate mail. People will drive by what you're doing and put nasty letters in your box. In other words, godly conduct is going to bring about slander. And Peter acknowledges this. He says that in our verse. And his first century readers would have understood this in a number of ways. They experienced slander for their Christian witness. We might call this a Christian norm. A believer gets saved. He or she starts to exhibit Christ-like conduct. The world slanders. Now, the first century Christian receives slander in quite a few different ways. The book of Acts is a great place to start. It's a record of the birth of the church. When the gospel spreads, persecution follows. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, they're hauled before city magistrates. And the accusation is that they are lawbreakers. They incited others to break the law. The motive was money. They saw that their hope of profit was gone. People weren't making as much money. They were slandering Christians. Same thing happened in Ephesus. As people turn to Christ, what do they turn from? False gods. Less people means less money. Those people who were turning out these false gods, these idols, they weren't making as much money. 
They were losing more and a quarter than Bud Light did. In Acts chapter 17, Jewish opponents, they're slandering a new believer named Jason. Their motive was jealousy. Quote, they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king named Jesus. Which, by the way, the Jews should have been affirming. But not only does the book of Acts provide some examples, other authors of history do as well. A Roman historian named Suetonius slanders Christians as a, quote, class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. The Roman Empire didn't know what to make of what was happening in its midst. Another historian named Tacitus writes, they were loathed for their vices. We'll describe what he means by vices in a moment. He records that Emperor Nero set Rome on fire and he blamed the Christians for it. Quote, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite torches on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the people. These many standards of Christian practice that are very familiar to you and I, a moment ago were called vices, were quite confusing to the Romans. And they were occasions for slander, first because they were not fully understood, and no doubt secondly because Satan was working behind the scenes knowing full well what they meant. Baptism, for example, separated the new believer into a different group. It was that breaking point with society in some ways. People looked at it with great suspicion. There was something called a common meal. It's probably a blend of what is our Lord's Supper, communion, along with a potluck, where those things were happening probably together. They looked at that as a very strange and suspicious thing. Now, they're used to eating, that's fair enough, but they saw this whole idea of eating flesh and blood as very odd and very disturbing. Christians have a new spiritual family. They have a new Lord. The Romans would get upset, accusing them of destroying families. It was Jesus who said, However, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. They're following the teachings of Jesus. And the Romans had no idea what to do with this whole idea of a cross. Because this notorious instrument of Roman death, the crucifixion, became a symbol for the Christian movement. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What an odd thing to follow. And of course, societal norms became upended. Slaves were given dignity. Women were given worth. And Jesus was given the name Lord, which was a title reserved for Caesar. You see, when Christians became aliens, they ceased to be like the local people. That left a gap, and along came slander to fill it in. So expect hate mail. Expect the world to slander changes you are making in your life. They will not all be well received by onlookers. It is implied in this passage that first the unsaved can see our lives to make such charges. That means that our Christianity, by the way, is not confined to the living room or kept simply to ourselves or indoors. It's not a personal faith. But it also shows that people see something different. 
that this house that Jesus is building is in fact changing. There's noticeable changes about it. But I say all this so you don't get discouraged. Rather that you're encouraged. Don't let those things stop you. Keep going. Keep following the Spirit's prompting. Keep looking more and more like Jesus Christ. And be quite proud of it. You don't need to be beaten down about it. You don't need to be silenced over it. God is working to renovate your house, and that's to be celebrated. If, I should say as well, if the slander goes away, that might be a time for us to pause and wonder why. Has my light grown dim to the world? And maybe I'm getting a little too chummy with the world. What is going on that I have found such peace with the world? That might be a question for us to ask too. So when you renovate, not all are going to appreciate this. To borrow from our illustration this morning, we want to overhaul it all. We want to expect hate mail when we do. But thirdly, as you do, select tasteful design. Select tasteful design as you renovate. Now, we've all driven by houses that have some pretty crazy things going on some pretty crazy paint jobs or some really unusual new construction. We've all seen that paint color that made you tap your brakes. In our passage this morning, in verse 12, Peter uses the word good two times. Now this word for sure describes our behavior and our deeds. We can see that. In fact, I would even argue in our language, we probably use the word good a little too much, a little overused, making it a little too common and mundane. But the word in the Greek language means beautiful. It means beautiful. It has that important aspect to it. And we see that in the context, it has to do with a certain moral quality. We want our behavior to be good or beautiful. Worshippers describe the temple this way in the New Testament. They, they, they saw the stones and they called them beautiful. They're appealing to the eye. Jesus Christ is beautiful. I think that's an important truth in our text here this morning. It's underlying it. Our lives are to reflect his beauty. That as we live our lives, Jesus is appealing to the world around us. That our behavior and our deeds, they should make Christ desirous. I believe here that Peter does draw on the teaching of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds, it's the same word, your beautiful deeds, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, our behavior or our deeds, I don't need to list them out here, they are too numerous to mention. We could even say that everything we do is an opportunity to make Jesus beautiful. That might be another way to say it because there's just too many to list. But at the same time, notice what Peter's going to do in the text that's coming up. He's going to hone in on certain areas of our lives. These are all areas that we can make Jesus beautiful. To tie this in with our text from last week, this is ways we proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. That's all quite applicable. In the verses that are ahead, we may wonder about beautiful behavior with, with trust or distrust in the government at all-time highs. What does beautiful behavior look like to the authority? What about our nasty boss? 
Is the word laid beautiful even in that conversation? And Peter sets out to answer these things. How about a husband? How does a husband become appealing? How does he become more than a man of overtime hours and the remote control? Peter asks about women. In the wreckage of a feminist movement, what is God's will for wives? Peter argues that they may even win their lost husbands because of their godly beauty. We have thousands of opportunities to make Jesus beautiful every day. We'll get to see some specifics in the rest of the chapter into chapter 3. But even more than that, you and I must do this. Because fourthly, when we renovate, the neighbors are watching. The neighbors are watching. The unsaved are watching the lives of the Christians. This is a reality that's implied from our text. We know that our lives are not invisible. We understand that Peter writes about slander. Unbelievers were slandering believers. It's also explicitly stated, we hear that they observe. The unbelievers observe your life. That word has to do with continuity. They are watching over a period of time. It has to do with intensity. They're watching pretty closely. The renovations that you make will be noticed. I think it's a good reminder for you and I that how we live our lives can have a significant impact on winning the lost to Jesus Christ, for good or for ill. One commentator said the hypocrisy meter is constantly scanning our lives, that people out there are watching, maybe with some curiosity, maybe with some ill intent, but they're watching our lives to see if our faith, if our walk matches our profession and our talk. The reality is that you and I are actually witnessing to the lost every day in how we live our lives. And that's to say that the best evangelism, it may not come from a gifted speaker. It may not come from one who has the gift of evangelism. Conversion may not come from any of those people. But the Lord has ordained through routine, ordinary living to draw people to himself. He's going to bring men and women to saving faith by watching your life, by beginning with that, starting there first. Your very normal Christian life, that's how God wins the loss. And that means this morning for employers, it's how you talk to your employees. And that means this morning, moms, it's how you raise your kids. And that means this morning, dads, it's how you submit to your boss. And that means this morning, grandparents, it's how you use your retirement. And that means this morning, young people, it's how you play. Sports, it's how you do school. All of these things, the world is watching. If there's a whiff of Christ spoken from our mouth, God uses good deeds to bring about eternal change in the lives of people. Every day, it's as though the lost are putting a a new piece of paper in the typewriter, and they're just typing away, even without being aware They're keeping a record. They're watching our lives. They're hearing our words. They're remembering how we spoke, how we made them feel, the kinds of experiences they had as they interacted with us. These things of God, used by God, they become a potent tool in his hand. Well, as a result, finally, fifthly, in your renovation, you're going to need to build a bigger deck. 
build a bigger deck. More room will be needed as God adds to his kingdom. There's basically a progression in our verses. You may have detected it. We began in the heart. This is the scene of the battle. It's the source of our desires. We know that these desires produce a certain behavior. And when we get that behavior right, when we get those desires right, I should say, we begin to behave correctly in a way that reflects God and is in line with who God wants us to be. And this is the kind of stuff that makes Jesus Christ beautiful to the watching world. And Peter writes, as the lost observe your good deeds, they glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, we know this isn't an unconditional promise. In fact, we just learned that it's not. Slander, sadly, is a very real response to obedient Christian living. And not all who bear witness to faithful Christian living are going to turn to Jesus. So this is a passage where we learn that the promise is not that all will believe, but we don't want to miss the other side of that. It does appear that some will. Some will. And what a special testimony that would be. Boy, can you imagine that? Or perhaps you've heard of one of those where someone's come to faith as a result of someone else's life. Now, we know that the Lord did that, that that the Lord brought that about. That was just the means that the Lord used. But what a special thing when that happens. In the day of visitation, Peter writes, they will glorify God. Now, there's two main views on what Peter means by this. On this day of visitation, what are you talking about, Peter? Well, some view this as God's judgment. The day of visitation is the judgment of God. This is where the lost would stand before God and give an account to him. We spoke about this in Sunday school this morning, Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment. They will stand before God and give an account of their lives, and God will review their deeds with them. So what Peter's arguing here, essentially on this view, under this view, is there's this acknowledgement of deeds that the unbeliever will be able to think back and remember the good deeds done by Christians as a testimony, they're acknowledging those deeds. The other view concerns God's salvation. If the first view is concerning God's judgment, this one concerns God's salvation, that the day of visitation is actually conversion for the lost. Well, the day of salvation, converts glorify God. Now, many New Testament verses frame it this way. They frame salvation this way, that when souls go from death to life, they glorify God. One commentator argued that in no place in the Bible or in the New Testament is the word glorify used of unbelievers. In other words, that's just not something that unsaved people do. They don't glorify God. They may give an account at the end to the first view, but they don't walk around glorifying God ever. I favor this latter view. I just think there's better scriptural support for it. But it's a good reminder. It's why when we renovate all that people can see about our lives, it's why we need to build a bigger deck. Because God's going to redeem people. And God's going to use our lives as a powerful tool to welcome them into his kingdom. We just never know what God could do through a life lived for Jesus Christ. A few years back, a, a study was conducted to better understand the relationship between the flower and the bee. We all know that there's a very important exchange that needs to take place for creation, for nature to be happening. 
Uh, the flower, for example, wants to, to get rid of its pollen and pass it on to the bee. And the bee wants to eat that pollen. It's his only source of protein. But for the bee, or I should say for the flower, there is a world of competition out there. One university professor said it this way, quote, the flowers are trying to make themselves look as different as possible. Beautiful colors, the intricate hues of a flower, their spectacular patterns, their attractive scents, and their electrified fields. It was discovered through this study that flowers produce a slight negative charge just enough to attract the bee to the pollen. It helps to to draw the bee so that they would come and take what this flower offers. In other words, this beauty of the flower is energized. Something within that flower produces that charge, and it attracts the bee to, to come and take the pollen and complete that exchange. You see, I love that illustration because in a similar way, our lives ought to draw the unbelievers, to come receive Jesus Christ, to see the beauty of Christ and the beauty of his gospel. And even more than that, as we renovate our lives, as God renovates our lives, the unbelievers will find that attractive, Lord willing, and come and be saved. Your life, believer, your life is one of beauty. It's a beautiful life because God has stepped into it And he's changing you and renovating you and creating you a new creature. Our Christian lives are not meant to be cold and sterile and to be some boring to-do list or some magical formula for conversions. That's not what God has in mind at all. See, the Christian life reflects Christ. It's a beauty formed by God. It's a beauty for God. And I pray he would use your life to draw others to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are a fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And Lord, I pray for us this morning that you would have your way with your building and that you would build us into the kind of people that you want us to be. Yes, I pray that it would be for our joy and our pleasure, but I pray that it be for much more than that. I pray that you would change us into the kind of people you want us to be so you can bring new people into our family. We are thankful for the privilege of being beautiful models of what you do in people. I pray that we'd be encouraged to go and live a life that honors you and to be a reflection of this fragrant aroma that you put off. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.